0: All right, well, we are wrapping up our summer teaching series. Uh, We're actually finishing the Bible today. That's pretty amazing. We have spent the summer surveying the Bible from cover to cover. The title of our teaching series is Legacy, and that's what we're trying to do is find our place in the story of God. My heart is that by surveying the Bible from cover to cover, we would understand so much more about the Bible and each individual book in the Bible. And if we understand it more we'll be more likely to read it, more likely to find out what God would say through it. And then we're also looking at what all of these men and women of the Bible are still speaking to us today, that the Bible is not an ancient relic. The Bible is not some old, out-of-date book. The Bible is the living word of God that is still speaking to us today, changing and transforming our lives today. I have shared my heart that as your pastor, my desire is that we would see our whole church reading the Bible every day and growing. And and next week, this is a little sneak peek, but next week, we're going to be launching a program that's going to start on August 1st. And the goal of the program is that all of us as a church not only would read the Bible every day, but we'd be reading the same thing together out of the Bible every day. That way we can hold each other accountable. We can talk about it. We can process it. Hey, what's God speaking in your life? Hey, I have a question about what I read yesterday. Do you know what this meant? And it's just going to create an atmosphere where we're going to come together with a greater level of unity, a greater level of growth, a greater level of spiritual maturity as we all read the Bible together. So about a week and a half ago at Equip Nights, I shared this program with those that came. They got the, they got the early screening and uh, we recorded that teaching, and I'm actually going to email that teaching to everybody this week so you can listen to that if you like. And then next Sunday, we're going to unveil this program. So there's a little hook to get you to come back next Sunday and, uh, and see what we're going to do together to uh, hold each other accountable and create this culture where we all read together. But we're going to jump into the final part of our series if you look at our slide, we, what we did this summer is we broke the Bible down into eight different sections and we spent one Sunday on each section. And so this is the final section there of the, of the New Testament. We are going to look at the other apostolic epistles. We looked at all of Paul's epistles last week and now we're going to look at what the rest of the apostles wrote this week. Every week I've given you a new Bible fact so that you have a little bit more understanding of the Bible And since this is our last Sunday in the New Testament, I thought it would be important to answer the same question that we asked for the Old Testament, and that is, why do we have these books in the New Testament? So we looked at the 39 books of the Old Testament, but now the question is, how did we get the 27 books of the New Testament, and why those 27? Why aren't there more? Why aren't there less? How did we end up with the 27 books that we now know as the New Testament? So let me reintroduce a word to you. We talked about this in the Old Testament, and that word is canon. A canon is a body of rules, principles, or standards that's accepted as universally binding in a field of study. So a canon can apply to any field of study. It's not just a biblical word. In fact, it can even apply to fiction. So for many of you that are familiar with Star Wars, and you know that Star Wars is a series of movies, But for those of us that are much deeper Star Wars nerds, we know that Star Wars is so much more than just movies, right? It's a series of movies, but it's also cartoons and video games and probably like 300 different books that have been written over the last 35 years. But in Star Wars, there is a canon. There is a set of rules that any author that wants to write a Star Wars book Anybody that wants to do a Star Wars video game, anybody has to follow a canon. There is a set timeline. There are set characters. And everything that's written for Star Wars has to fit inside this canon. All right? So canon doesn't just apply to the Bible. It can apply to any field of study. But we're going to apply it today to the New Testament. What is the canon of the New Testament? What are the rules that determined which books were divinely inspired to be considered the Bible? The first rule is this apostolic authority. The works had to be written by one of the early apostles or a close associate of one of the early apostles. So the book had to be confirmed that it was written by apostle and that it was accepted that that apostle had the authority to write the word of God. And so obviously we can see Paul and all the epistles that he wrote and recognized as an apostle. We see Peter and John and Matthew. We see a couple of guys, though, that aren't apostles, but they were close associates. For example, Mark wrote a gospel. Mark wasn't considered an apostle, but he was a close associate of Peter. And we believe that Peter was the main source of everything that Mark wrote, right? So we have apostolic authority. It had to have been accepted at the time it was written that this was written by an apostle who had the authority over the churches. The second rule is what we call orthodoxy. And orthodoxy means that it's consistent with the story of the Bible. It doesn't contradict anything that's already previously been accepted as Scripture. And the third rule is what we would call Catholicity. Obviously, this is where we got Catholic from, for those that are familiar with the Catholic Church. But Catholicity actually means it was universally accepted and used throughout the Christian churches. So this wasn't just a a writing that one church was using. This was a writing that was used throughout all of the Christian churches around the known world. And so a book had to follow these three rules to be considered a part of the canon. And what we know is this, is that 21 of the 27 books that we have were universally accepted as early as the 100s A.D. And so that was the four gospels in the book of Acts. That was all 13 of Paul's epistles and there was also 1st and 2nd Peter and 1st John. So we know that as early as just 70 years after Jesus died, 21 of the 27 books were already universally accepted. In fact, Peter wrote his book after Paul wrote most of his epistles and Peter actually wrote that Paul's writings were already recognized as scripture. So, I mean, within a few years of Paul writing, Peter is already recognizing that Paul's writings are scripture. So, 21 of the 27 books were already accepted that early. The other six had questions about them, and it took a little longer for those ones to catch on and be widely accepted amongst the churches. Hebrews was questionable because the authorship isn't completely certain. There's actually controversy over who wrote Hebrews. James Took a little while to catch on because the big question was, did it contradict Paul's teaching on grace? Because James wasn't very graceful. James was a little more blunt and in your face. So there was the question, did James contradict Paul? Then second and third, John and Jude are just such short letters. The question was, are they even long enough to include? Like, are they even significant enough to put in the Bible? And then finally, there's Revelation. And the question of Revelation was how the heck is the church supposed to interpret this, right? This was, this was a heavy book. So those six books took a little bit longer to catch on and be widely accepted. But what we know is this. All 27 books were mentioned together as canon by the church father or region in the early 200s A.D. So that's the earliest mention that we have found of all 27 books being compiled together a complete manuscript of all 27 books compiled together. The earliest one that's been found dates around 300 AD. And then all of this was made made official in 393 AD at the Council of Hippo, and that's where the the canon that we have today was formally ratified. Now skeptics will say that at the Council of Hippo, Augustine and these other guys got together and they just handpicked the books that they liked and left out the books they didn't like. That's just not true. The 27 books had already been recognized as canon for 200 years before the Council of Hippo. The Council of Hippo was just making it official, right? It was just ratifying what had already been accepted. So, so don't let skeptics pass on that false information. The last question then is why were certain books left out? Why, why are there some gospels and some letters that have names of apostles on them, but they weren't allowed in. And I have two answers really briefly. The first one is false authorship. The apostles didn't really write them. If there was somebody who wanted to introduce their own teaching in the church, they would write whatever they wanted, and then to try to get it accepted in the church, they would add one of the apostles' names to it so that it would be accepted. But it's false authorship. False authorship. Most of those books were actually written in the 2nd century A.D. after those original apostles were all already dead. And then the second answer is simply contradictory teaching. The main teaching was Gnosticism. And so if you'll hear about, like, if you watch the History Channel, they'll talk about, like, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas and how these Gospels got suppressed out of the Bible. They didn't get suppressed out of the Bible. They were actually Gnostic teachings that they just attached the names of the apostles to them to try to get acceptance. You know, and then there's others, like there was a, an epistle written by Barnabas that was circulated amongst the churches. But at the end of the day, they found some of the writing to be very anti-Semitic, very divisive, and they decided, you know what, this isn't in line with the Holy Scripture, so we're not going to allow it to be a part of the Holy Scripture, right? So, so when people say, ah, these books were suppressed, they weren't suppressed They were just most likely not authentic and and not consistent with the Bible. So there you go. That's how we've got the 27 books of the New Testament and how they were brought together and how God supernaturally preserved them so that we have them today. So let's look at our final section of the Bible, the other apostolic epistles. We call them the general apostolic epistles. Before we get into this, I think it's important to talk about what does apostle even mean? I think it would be wrong of me just to assume that everybody knows what I'm talking about when I say apostle. In fact, it's even a little bit controversial because churches have different ideas of what apostle means. The strictest idea of apostle is that there were only 12 apostles. There was Jesus had 12 original disciples. Judas Iscariot disqualified himself. So then they brought Matthias in to replace him. And so some churches believe it was those 12 guys and nobody else. And when those 12 guys died, all the apostolic authority, all the miracles, everything that flowed through the hands of the apostles died with them. All right, That's not what we believe here at Kauai Bible Church. But that is what some churches, that is their strictest interpretation. Other churches have a little bit looser interpretation. They believe there was the 12 original apostles Plus, there was maybe another 12 apostles that are mentioned in the New Testament. Guys like Paul and Barnabas, who weren't the original 12, but they were recognized as apostles. But the churches still believe that when that generation died, all the apostolic authority died with them. What we believe at Kauai Bible Church is this we believe that the apostle is an office that is still active in the church today. In Ephesians, it lists the five offices of the church, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. And so we believe that the apostle is still an office that is in function today. Now, we don't believe that apostles today still have the divine authority to write Scripture. We don't believe that. We believe the Scripture is set and done. But we do believe in the office of the apostle. So what is the office of an apostle? Well, an apostle is a leader of leaders. An apostle is a pastor of pastors. And so an an apostle is somebody who has authority over a whole region of churches. Whereas a pastor has authority over one church, an apostle has an authority over churches over a wide region, right? And so uh, apostles are generally ones who will plant several churches and then have authority over all of them. That's what Paul did, right, when he went out and planted churches, uh, and so one example we have here at Kauai Bible Church is um, uh, we have had Emmanuel Canastraci here many, many times. We view Emmanuel Canastraci in the office of an apostle. He has authority over churches all over the world, and, uh, and he has a great passion to build the church and to strengthen the church. So that's what apostles are about today, is those that have authority and those that have a passion to build and strengthen the church. Um, We don't believe that they have the authority anymore to write the Bible, but we still view it as an important office within the church. But in this first generation of Christianity, these were all apostles that lived at the same time as Jesus, and and they had a specific function within the church. So let's start with the book of Hebrews. Again, we said we, we aren't exactly sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Many scholars believe it was Paul. Some of Hebrew sounds like Paul, and so it would fit that Paul wrote it. The problem is is that Paul didn't introduce himself, and every other letter he wrote, he introduced himself. And so the question then is why didn't he introduce himself in this one? But many believe that Paul wrote it. Other scholars would theorize that maybe it was Luke, Barnabas, or Apollos that wrote it, one of the other early apostles. But we just don't know for sure. Um, And uh, therefore, that's why Hebrews wasn't accepted until later. Hebrews, we don't know exactly when it was written, but we do know this. It was written to Jewish people, and it doesn't mention the destruction of the temple, which means it was probably written before that, because otherwise that would have been kind of a big deal to talk about. So that means it was written before 70 A.D., probably sometime between 64 and 69 A.D. The theme of Hebrews is the priestly ministry of Jesus in the life of the believer. Jesus is painted as the great high priest that we have who intercedes between us and God the Father. And uh, that's, uh, that's the picture. Now, Hebrews was probably written to Jewish believers during the time when Nero was persecuting the church. Think about this. When Nero took over, the persecution against Christians, I mean, some had already been persecuted, but the intensity ramped up to a whole new level. We just watched a movie. You can find it in Redbox. I don't think it's on Netflix yet, but it's called Paul, Apostle of Christ. It's a new Christian movie that came out, and it is fantastic. I was really impressed with how accurate it was. In fact, I only had one disagreement with the movie, and that is that I believe that Luke wrote the book of Acts in 62 A.D., and the movie says he wrote it in 67 A.D. That was, that's pretty much the only argument I have with the movie. Otherwise, amazingly accurate, but this movie was very brutal and very graphic. My 11-year-old had to leave the room. She couldn't keep watching it because it showed the persecution and what life was like for Christians under Nero, that they would be tied up on stakes and lit on fire and burned alive as torches to light the city streets and how they were corralled into the Colosseum to be eaten alive by lions while the Romans watched and cheered. Um, the intensity of the persecution was so great and in the face of this persecution, many Jewish believers in Jesus were considering just going back to Judaism. Hey, you know what? The Old Testament law, nobody was killing us for the Old Testament law. Let's just go back to the Old Testament law. And the writer of Hebrews was writing to them saying, no, Jesus is still the best option. He's better than the Mosaic law. He's better than sacrificing bulls and goats, right? He is better than a high priest, uh, an earthly high priest. Jesus is better. And that's the theme of Hebrews and and what they were writing to. Let's look at James. Now, James and Jude can be kind of confusing because there were, of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, one was named James and one was named Jude. But those weren't the guys that wrote these books in the Bible. The James and the Jude that wrote these books in the Bible were the half-brothers of Jesus. Why do we call them half-brothers? Because we know that Jesus' dad was God. And their dad was Joseph, right? Okay, so um, these were the half-brothers of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 13 and 35, when the people are complaining, they're saying, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So we know that he had these four brothers. And we know that James and then Judas, who shortened his name to Jude, I don't know why. Maybe he didn't want to be associated with Judas Iscariot, right? So don't call me Judas. Call me Jude. These were his brothers, and they did not believe in him when he was having his earthly ministry. In fact, they were embarrassed of him. So sometime after his resurrection, they see their brother resurrected, and they realize, oh, my goodness, I did grow up with God, right? Any of you that have ever had older siblings and your parents say to you something like, hey, why can't you be more like your older brother? Imagine what it's like growing up with Jesus, right? Why can't you be more like Jesus? He's perfect. He never does anything wrong. He always does the dishes, and he doesn't complain, right? So James and Jude realized that they had grown up with God, and they gave their lives to Christ and became apostles in the church. And so James and Jude are actually written by the brothers of Jesus, James was one of the primary leaders of the church at Jerusalem. Uh, In fact, at the Jerusalem Council in 49 A.D., James is the one who stood up and spoke and brought clarity to the issue. Scholars believe that he wrote this epistle shortly before that Jerusalem Council, so probably sometime around 45 to 48 A.D. And his main theme was that faith in Christ causes a person to live a certain way. James was very direct, right? He was just like, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, your life should look like this. And if your life doesn't look like this, you need to get your act together, right? There wasn't a whole lot of grace in the book of James. It uh, sounded more like the Old Testament wisdom books. It was more blunt like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, and definitely differed from Paul's epistles. But you'll notice James wrote his before Paul wrote any of his, right? So James's writing comes earlier Um, The book of James is very practical. He gives very practical ways that we're supposed to live out our faith and how we're supposed to live as followers of Jesus. Let's look at Peter. Peter, obviously, uh, was one of Jesus' original apostles. He was the leader of the first church of Jerusalem, right? Anybody that grew up Catholic, you know that Peter is considered to be the first pope, right? He was the first leader of the church. He most likely wrote his book, Around 64 A.D., the first of his two books, and he was writing as the Christians were more and more getting persecuted under Nero. And so the main theme of First Peter is the importance of persevering in the face of suffering. In fact, when we look at the Old Testament, we consider Job to be the book of the Old Testament that answers the question, why do good people suffer? Well, in the New Testament, we look at First Peter as the book to answer the question, how should we live while we're suffering? And that's really what Peter speaks to the people. Second Peter, he probably wrote very shortly after his first letter, so maybe just a year later, around 65 AD. And the main theme was overcoming false teachers by pursuing the truth of the Word of God. Peter was rebuking false teachers and encouraging the people to grow in their spiritual maturity so they wouldn't be deceived by false teachers. And then we look at John. Also, one of Jesus' original apostles, he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote these three epistles, and he wrote the book of Revelation. These three epistles he probably wrote around 90 A.D. when he was exiled on the island of Patmos, right? The Romans tried to murder John along with all the other Christians, and they just couldn't kill him. Legend says they threw him in a pot of boiling oil, and he climbed out of it alive, right? He was known as the disciple whom you couldn't kill. And so when they got tired of trying to kill him, finally they just exiled him to an island just so they could keep him quiet. And from this island that he was exiled on, he wrote letters back to the churches that he had apostolic authority over. So his first letter, oh, and also all three of his letters focused on fellowship and love. That was John's life message. You know, you hear preachers that have a life message, so no matter what they're preaching, you always kind of hear the same vein in it. Well, John's life message was fellowship and love. Everything he wrote kept coming back to fellowship and love. Love of God being in community together. Love of God being in community together. So his first letter he probably wrote to the churches in Asia Minor. Um, Ephesus is where he spent a lot of time and all the churches around Ephesus. The main theme was being certain of our salvation and being in fellowship with other believers. And, and so John, in this first letter, he's very uncomplicated. John is very black and white, right? There's right and there's wrong. There's light and there's darkness. There's, you know, there, he was just very straightforward about that. In his second letter, also most likely written to the same audience, he encourages the people to love one another, but to use discernment in who we allow to fellowship with us. See, they were allowing false teachers into the fellowship because they're like, oh, we're just supposed to love everybody. Come hang out with us. And John is like, no, you're supposed to love everybody, but you need to have discernments." And John was rebuking a very specific false teaching known as docetism. (laughs) Docetism. And that false teaching was basically that Jesus was never actually human. That people that thought they saw him as a human were just seeing an illusion And that Jesus was never actually human. So John was specifically rebuking that false teaching. And then in his third letter, he was writing to a church leader named Gaius. Because apparently in response to his second letter, what the church decided to do under a leader named Diotrephes is they decided, well, if we're supposed to discern false teachers, we're just not going to let any traveling missionaries come into our church. They're not allowed to teach here. They're not allowed to fellowship with us. And so John was writing to Gaius saying, listen, you need to continue to welcome and love those that are actually teaching the truth. Don't just kick everybody out. Be discerning. Those traveling missionaries that are coming to teach you the truth, let them into your fellowship. So then we have Jude again. We just talked about that this was not the original apostle Jude. This was the half-brother of Jesus who became a follower of Jesus and who became uh, one of the early apostles. In 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul writes this. He says, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? Right? Paul's kind of griping a little bit about his call to singleness, right? He's like, don't I get a wife? He says, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas... So right here, Paul is pointing to the fact that James and Jude, as brothers of the Lord, went out as apostles and and, um, were leaders in the church. So Jude, the book is extremely difficult to date because there's not really any clues in it as to when it was written. The only guess that scholars can make is that it was probably written after 2 Peter was being circulated because there's a lot of similarities in the writing. So probably sometime between 67 and 80 A.D., Jude was written. The main theme of Jude was to expose false teachers and to encourage Christians to stand firm in the faith. And Jude used very harsh terminology to describe these false teachers. He wanted the believers to be aware of how serious this was. So you notice Peter, John, and Jude, all of them were dealing with false teachers in the church. And the churches, they had authority over. They were writing to the churches to warn them about false teachers. And then finally... We've got the book of Revelation. This was also written by John. This was the last book written in the Bible, probably right around 95 AD, right before John died of old age. He has this revelation, and he writes it down. The book is addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor. You can see them on the screen there. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Whoo, come on. Been practicing my Greek. Here we go. Come on. So the the book of Revelation is addressed to these seven churches. Why? Because these are probably seven of the main churches that John had apostolic authority over. You can break Revelation into three sections. The first three chapters are prophetic declarations made to these seven churches. Then chapters 4 through 18 is a picture of the time of great tribulation. It's a picture of the end times. And this is the part that's really difficult to understand right? When you dive into these 15 chapters, you're getting into some heavy stuff. This is not recommended beginner reading, okay? There's so much metaphors, so much symbolic language. People interpret it so many different ways, right? Is there, uh, is there a rapture and then a tribulation? Is there a tribulation, then a rapture? Is the rapture somewhere right in the middle of the tribulation? What does it mean as a swarm of locusts? Are they talking about helicopters coming to wage war again? You know what I mean? Like, you could get so deep into it, all right? So, so that's those 15 chapters. And then the final four chapters of Revelation is very clear. It's Jesus' final victory and the recreation of the new earth for believers to dwell with him for all eternity. And this is what I love, man. The, book, the Bible starts out in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve being placed into a perfect earth where their intention was to spend eternity in fellowship with God. Obviously they sin sin comes into the world the curse of sin comes upon mankind So god has to form a plan to redeem us from our sin So he calls together a nation of people known as the hebrews So that he could bring a savior out of them and the entire old testament is him just trying to preserve the hebrew people So that a savior can come and then the savior comes and his name is jesus and he lives for us He dies for us. He resurrects and he's still alive today for us And then we have the rest of the New Testament, which teaches us how to live for Jesus. And then finally, we have the book of Revelation, which shows that Jesus wins the final victory. And we're going to be restored to the original purpose of Adam and Eve, which is to live on a perfect earth for all eternity in fellowship with God, never to fail again. Can I get an amen here? Come on. That is the entire story of the Bible. And we are trying to find our place in that story. Somewhere in between the book of Acts and the book of Revelation, we are living out the story of God today. And we are finding our place in that story and our call to ministry in that story and our purpose in a community of God in a church like this. We're finding our place in that story. I don't have much time left. Let me just uh, talk about what is our legacy from the apostles? What would some of the apostles say to us today let's start with james remember james was the very blunt one right the very direct one james would say this to us today be careful what you ask for be careful what you ask for let's read james chapter 4 the first four verses says this what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses. Now let's stop right there. Like, wait a minute. Is he just talking to ladies here? He says, you adulteresses. No, we are the bride of Christ. So if we are cheating on Jesus, we are all adulteresses, okay? He's not just talking to women here. He's talking to the church as a whole, all right? You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You guys get a little taste here of how direct James is, right? James says, be careful what you ask for. First, he says, you have not because you ask not. And this is a great encouragement for us to go to prayer, right? We don't have the things of God in our lives because we're not asking for the things of God in our lives. But that's not actually the focus of what James is trying to teach here. What he's trying to teach here is that we're asking for things with the wrong motives. We're being driven by our carnal pleasures, we're being driven by what our flesh wants, not by what God wants. And listen, I believe this happens very subtly, and this is why you know, James is saying be careful what you ask for because it happens very subtly. It's not like all of a sudden we wake up one day as followers of Jesus and we're just like, hey, I'm just going to be completely selfish in my walk with God. I'm just going to ask for what I want, and I'm just going to use it on my own pleasure. That's not how it happens. What happens is we start getting drawn away very subtly by the things of this world. Very subtly, there's things that our flesh craves. And and when we begin to focus on those things and we begin to make those things important and we begin to strive after those things and those things that our flesh craves suddenly now becomes the central focus of our desire in life. So be careful what you ask for. It's going to start out as something small but it will grow until it creates full-blown sin in our lives, right? Murder, envy, fighting, quarreling. This is why I have a huge problem with the prosperity gospel. I cannot stand preachers that get on TV or have big fancy churches and say, man, if you want that motorcycle, all you got to do is just ask God for that motorcycle, Right? You just prophesy it and you prophesy it and you just claim your motorcycle. What? That's not in the Bible. Unless somehow you're going to use that motorcycle for the glory of God. Right? Now, Now we're starting to rationalize. Well, I could ride that motorcycle around and tell people about Jesus. Right? Yeah, I'll wear a Jesus T-shirt while I'm riding my motorcycle, all right? He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. If the focus of your prayer life is the things that will make your life easier, something is broken in your prayer life. If the focus of your prayer life is the things that you want so that you can have more fun, something is broken in your prayer life. And what's going to happen is the more we're drawn by the things of this world, the more we want to associate ourselves with the world. And James, in his very direct way, says very simply, you're either a friend with the world or you're a friend with God, but you're not both. And if you desire to associate yourself with the world, you're actually setting yourself against God. Be careful what you ask for. We need to take the time to purposefully search our hearts. To say, Am I seeking the things of God for my life? Or am I just associating myself with the things of the world? Because they just seem so much more fun. And it doesn't just impact our prayer life, it also impacts our financial life. Because to have the things of the world that we want, we usually can't afford them. And so we get ourselves in trouble chasing after the things we want instead of using our money on the things that we're supposed to be using it for. James would say to us today, be careful what you ask for. I only got time for one more. I'm not going to get through all of them today. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Let's look at what Jude would say to us. Let's go to Jude. Now, there is no chapters in Jude because... There's just one chapter. It's just Jude. Okay, so let's look at verse 17 in Jude, and we're going to read a few verses together and look at what Jude would say to us today. He says, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, you notice, even in the Bible, they're already recognizing the other apostles having the authority to speak for Jesus. That they were saying to you, in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Those are ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the spirit. There he is describing false teachers, right? Worldly-minded. Wait a minute. That's what James was just warning us not to become. And now here's Jude telling us when we become worldly-minded, we become false teachers within the church. We become those that are causing division and confusion in the church, devoid of the spirit. We lose touch with the Holy Spirit in our lives. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Jude's message in his short book, is contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. He says to fight for your faith. There's going to be false teachers. There's going to be distractors. There's going to be people that are going to try to draw you away. There's going to be people that try to separate you from the community. And Jude says, fight for your faith. And then he gives us some really specific ways to fight for our faith. First, he says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Build yourselves up. What does that mean? It means build up your knowledge of the Word of God. Build up your knowledge of God Himself. Your faith is just the foundation. But if that's all you have, you're not going to be able to persevere when the distractors come, when the deceivers come. Your faith is just the beginning. On top of your faith, you're supposed to begin to build. And we build by learning. We build by experiencing the truth. You know, there's there's some ideas of Christianity that in order to be a Christian, we have to turn our brain off. Right? We just have to blindly follow some ridiculous ideas and just run with our emotions because we love Jesus. It's not true. Christy, building up your faith, part of that is building up your mind. It's not turning your brain off. It's filling your brain with the truth of God so that you can stand when the deceivers come. He says, build up your most holy faith. The second thing he says there in verse 20 is pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, those of us that are charismatic, we hear that and we say, we pray in our prayer language, man. When we pray in our prayer language, man, the Holy Spirit prays through us and I don't know what I'm saying, but I know it's perfect because it's God praying through me praying in the holy spirit can also mean actually praying in your language not just in a prayer language praying in your language whether it be english or some other language that you pray as the holy spirit prompts you the holy spirit puts something on your hearts and you pray for it i think both of those are completely accurate When Jude tells us to pray in the Holy Spirit, the more we are led by the Spirit of God in our prayer life, the more we will avoid the very thing James was warning us about, which is being driven by our selfishness in our prayer life. Pray in the Holy Spirit. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Right? Jesus said, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Part of maintaining our faith In the face of deception and distraction, is that we spend time abiding in the love of God. What does that mean? That means we spend time in worship, expressing our love and passion to God. That means we spend quiet time with God, allowing God to express His love and passion to us. And in that intimacy, our faith becomes stronger as we abide in the love of God. Then he says, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. We fix our eyes on the things to come. That's what keeps us grounded in our faith. Is that Jesus is coming back sometime. And whether I die before he comes back or whether I'm alive when he comes back. Either way, I'm going to spend eternity with him. And if I keep my mind focused on that important fact. That Jesus is going to come back and he's going to establish a new earth. And I'm going to live forever with him on that new earth. And that is the focus of my thought life that's going to keep me built up in my faith and how about this last one have mercy on some who are doubting save others by snatching them out of the fire what does that sound like to me that sounds like doing outreach you want to build up your faith do outreach go out and serve others that are lost in their sin go love them and share the faith with them the more you're focused on pouring out and sharing your faith with others the more you will build up that faith in your own life. Have mercy on those who are doubting. Snatch others out of the fire. I just love this picture. And, and again, I tell you guys all the time, I'm a movie guy, right? Well, at the end of the Lord of the Rings movies, right, when they're going to throw the ring into the lava, if you haven't watched them, I just saved you 12 hours, okay? Um, and the ring goes into the lava and then... uh. Frodo goes over the edge, and you think, oh, did Frodo just fall in the lava? No, he's hanging off the edge of the cliff. And his best friend, Samwise, reaches over the cliff and grabs his hand. Now, here's the problem. Frodo is attached to that ring. And so Frodo is actually considering jumping into the lava because he wants that ring so badly. And his best friend, Samwise, looks at him in the eyes while he's holding his hand, and all he says to him is, don't you let go don't you dare let go that's the picture of us reaching our friends for Christ they're drawn to sin the sin is that ring that fell in the lava they're drawn to it they're drawn to the very thing that is killing them and our role is to grab hold of their hands and say don't let go I've got truth for you I've got love for you I've got Jesus for you don't let go But he says, do it with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. What does that mean? It means be careful when you're doing outreach. Don't become a part of the sin you're trying to save them from. Right? We can do that sometimes. Oh, I just go to the party and drink with them because I'm trying to win them to Jesus. Well, Jude said, don't be polluted by the flesh, right? Make sure that you're not participating in the sin that you're trying to save them from. Fight for your faith. Build up your faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Abide in the love of God. Look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And do outreach. In my rehab days in recovery ministry, they tell you, you can't keep it unless you give it away. You can't keep it unless you give it away. You can't build your faith unless you're sharing it with others. Amen. Will you stand with me today? Man, we got through the Bible, you guys. I didn't get through my notes, but we got through the Bible. All of these teachings are on our website. All of them are on our podcast. If you missed any, you can listen to all eight of them. And you can review the Bible from cover to cover with us. But now my prayer going forward is this, is that we as the people of God together, as the community of Kauai Bible Church, that we would now press into the word of God together every day. And if we do that, we would grow in our unity. We would grow in our faith. And the very things that the apostles were trying to protect us from, such as false teachers and deception, such as being lured away by the things of the world, the very thing that the apostles were trying to protect us from, we will strengthen ourselves against as we dive into the word and read the word. Let's just close today. Let's sing uh, Jesus at the center. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The entire Bible is the word of God. The entire Bible from cover to cover is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the very word of God. And if we would make Jesus the center of our lives, we would make the word of God the center of our lives. And that word would bring life to our lives. It would bring strength to us. It would bring truth. It would bring accountability. It would bring community. It would bring fellowship. When we make the word the center of our lives. Let's sing this. Jesus, be the center.